All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44. Last we left off from Genesis, uh, Joseph and his brothers were, were eating and drinking together. Uh, he knew who they were, but they had no idea who he was. He knew that these were those brothers that mocked him and sold him into slavery 22 years before this. And what they knew was that Benjamin was safe. Benjamin, their favorite son of their father, was, was safe with them, that nothing bad happened to him. Simeon, their brother, was out of prison, and they were welcomed to this huge party in the home of the Egyptian prime minister. How in the world could that happen to us? But they were still living with this terrible secret that nobody knew, uh, not their father or Jacob. He didn't know what it was. Of course, their youngest brother, Benjamin, didn't know what the secret was, and their wives and their children didn't know what the secret was. But God knew, and what God is doing is he's using Joseph to expose their sin and bring about genuine repentance, because that repentance is going to lead to reconciliation of the most important family on the earth. Well, the hard part is that the road, with, uh, road towards reconciliation is often paved with, with things like famine. And this famine is going to take, part, take them to the, to the only place in the world that had food, and that's Egypt. Egypt, by the way, was the place where Joseph just happened to be the prime minister in charge of selling grain. And so when they get to Egypt, Joseph recognizes them immediately and, and speaks harshly to them. But he doesn't do this out of anger or bitterness or hatred. What he's doing is trying to see if their hearts have changed. Are these the same guys that they were before? I mean, these were terrible people. These brothers hated their, their daddy's favorite son so much that they sold him as a slave. And what Joseph wants to know is, are they treating daddy's new favorite son, Benjamin, his only true brother, uh, the way they treated him? In fact, is Benjamin even alive? Is his father still alive? And, and so Joseph needs to kind of keep them around. He needs to keep them coming back. And so he accuses them of being spies, and he throws them in prison for three days. Finally, when he lets them out, he keeps Simeon in prison and tells them, if you ever want to see Simeon again, then you need to bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, back. Uh, with them. And what we've seen throughout the narrative is, is glimpses of their hearts softening as, as God is working on them, but there's really not any signs of repentance just yet. I mean, they feel guilty about what they did to Joseph over 20 years ago, but they don't feel guilty enough to do anything biblically about it. And so to really understand Genesis 44, I thought it'd be good if we just kind of put ourselves in their shoes just for a few minutes. They've now made two stressful trips to Egypt. And I say stressful because the first trip, they're hungry. The first trip, there's probably something in them that's a little bit more than worried about running into Joseph. You know, maybe he's a, a common house slave that in, the, in the Airbnb that they're staying at, and that Joseph's going to come out there and they're going to see him and feel guilty. Or maybe they're going to be walking down the streets in Egypt and they're going to see him being sold on the auction block as a slave. Going back home from Egypt after that first trip was stressful because Simeon's in jail. And the only way to get Simeon out of jail is to bring Benjamin. How are they going to tell their father that they got to bring Benjamin? Well, the second trip to Egypt, 
That's stressful because they must have wondered if they'd still be accused of being spies or, or even thieves now because remember their money was for the grain was found in their sacks when they got home. And so they have Benjamin with them, but I mean Benjamin's not going to do any good to have with them if Simeon's been sent to another prison. Or maybe Simeon was sold into slavery because it's been months. So these are stressful trips. But the trip home from the second trip would have been the exact opposite. So, so it's a bit surprising when we get into the text to, to see this sudden turn as they go from feasting together uh, with Joseph to Joseph concocting this plan to set his younger brother up as a thief. And the question when I first got to this text was why? I mean, why now? I think part of the answer to that is found in the title to today's sermon, The Road Towards Reconciliation. Right? They're going in the direction of reconciliation, but they're not reconciled yet. And so this is the second part. And, and God is doing a work in these boys. And, 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 and this work goes beyond, like they can't just go, hey, Joseph, really sorry, and, and promise we'll never do that again. Because they've been living a lie for over 20 years. And remember how they originally introduced themselves to him. We're honest men. Problem is, they're not honest men. And so part of Joseph's testing their hearts to, to see their character was to show favoritism to Benjamin. Because when their father showed favoritism to him, they hated him for it. And it had to be more than just a little bit encouraging for, for Joseph that his brothers didn't seem to mind. But Joseph still doesn't know their heart. I mean, anybody can fake it in front of the prime minister, right? Anybody can act like the good brother in front of the prime minister. Anybody can, can fake it for a little while, but there needs to be a greater test. And, and so this week is really the, the greatest text, the test. And so they're on the, the road towards reconciliation, but reconciliation hasn't happened yet. Happened yet. And the reason reconciliation hasn't happened yet because, we, because repentance hasn't happened yet. And so when we left off last time, Joseph threw a party, and to their surprise, Joseph seated them in birth order. I saw one statistic, and I thought, I, don't, I can't believe this is true. They said that's a one in four million chance that that would happen. Either way, they were astonished. They knew there's no way this could be a coincidence, and and all is well, right? Hey, yeah, I don't know about the whole birth order thing. Maybe we're just a one in four million. All I know is we got grain. We got our brothers. Let's get out of here. Verse 1, chapter 44. Then he commanded, he being Joseph here, commanded his house steward saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. And so morning comes along and, and Joseph's got this plan in action for his steward to, <clears throat> excuse me, top off uh, their sacks full of grain, give them their money back and, and to take this special silver cup and put it in Benjamin's sack. And so I'm calling this, if you're taking notes, point number one, the arrangement. This is his arrangement. Most commentators think that uh, Joseph's brother spent the night at the house, and as soon as, it, as light came, they were sent off, and 
and, and they were, their, their bags are filled with grain and their bellies are full with food because they had this big buffet in the emperor's house or in the, in the prime minister's house. So this journey would have looked a whole lot different than the other journeys. I mean, of all the people in the world, these farmers from Canaan got a front row seat with the man, right? They're eating feasting with the man, the guy they call the Lord of the land. And so you, you could just imagine, right? They're, they're riding on their donkeys and, and one of them's yelling, hey, God is good. And the other is going all the time. And somebody yells all the time, God is good. They're singing, our God is an awesome God. And, and, and Joseph, though, he made some arrangements that's going to change their tune a little bit. Look at verse 4. And they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men. When you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So Joseph tells the steward exactly what to say. And I know it seems like Joseph is is kind of using his position to torment them. He's not. He's actually, Joseph is the first person in all of scripture called a spirit-filled man. And Joseph is testing their hearts because what's the goal? Bring them to repentance, right? We bring them to repentance, then we're gonna bring them to reconciliation. Look at verse six. So he, the, the, the steward, overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, what does my Lord speak such words as, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or, steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. We're we're innocent. I mean, you just heard us, right? God is good? All the time. All the time. We didn't steal anything. Remember, we're the guys. We're the ones who brought back the money that we found in our sacks. We're the ones who, we even brought gifts from Cain, like, why would we steal from you? We, we brought payment for new grain along, and we brought our brother. We did everything you said to do. And I'll tell you what, we're so innocent that if you find that cup in any of our bags, then that one dies, and the rest of us are your slaves. Look at verse 10. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He being the steward, he with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. So the servant changes the deal. You know why he changes the deal? He knows who, he, he's the one who planted the cup. The brothers said, death to the guilty one, slavery to the rest, and the steward changes it and says, the guilty one will be the slave, and the, the rest of them will be free. Verse 11. Then they hurried. Circle that word, hurried. They hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. They hurried to have their bags inspected. Listen, guilty people don't hurry to be inspected. Guilty people make all the excuses in the world not to be inspected, right? They're innocent, and they know that they're innocent. Verse 12, he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup 
was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, one thing that I, I actually this morning, I, I read through this passage one more time this morning, and, and I thought, none of them mentioned about the money. There's no mention about the money. They open the sack, and, and the, the money's right there, right? Nobody says anything about the money. Nobody goes, oh, something's wrong. We, we gave you money, and now the money's here. Why is the money here when we gave you the money? Nobody says that. The, the only thing it says is they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, each man opened his sack, he searched beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And you can just picture these men. The stewards are, are searching the bags, and, and as each bag is inspected, by the way, from oldest to youngest, the confidence is growing. Reuben doesn't have the cup. Simeon doesn't have the cup. Levi doesn't have it. Judah doesn't have it. There's nothing in Dan's bag, nothing in Naphtali's bag. Gad doesn't have it. Asher doesn't have it. Issachar doesn't have it. Zebulon doesn't have it. And then there's Benjamin's bag. But nobody's worried about Benjamin, right? Because if this is all about what happened to Joseph 22 years ago, Benjamin wasn't even there. We're scot-free. We've gotten away with that. And by the way, we've been watching over Benjamin so closely this whole time because we didn't want anything to happen to him because he's daddy's favorite son. And if anything happens to him, something happens to us. But when his bag is open and that grain is sifted out and that bright Egyptian sun starts shining on that bag, that silver cup just starts gleaming. And Benjamin is guilty. And you know what? It doesn't matter how it got there. He's guilty. How do you think these boys would have responded 20 years before? Man, that stinks for you, Benjamin. Not sure why you would have stole that cup. Guys, I think we just need to get on the road and make up a story for dad. Maybe we don't even have to make up a story. Maybe we just say, hey, dad, this is what happened. That favorite son of yours, he stole the cup. I mean, the the prime minister's cup, the silver cup, his divination cup. I don't know how you raised up this boy, but we didn't do it. We're, we're innocent. Your son's gone. Like 20 years before, that's what they're saying, right? That's not what they do. Look at verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. That, that tearing your clothes, it's, it's, it's an expression of, of horror, this is how they would react when someone they loved suddenly and tragically died. They would just tear their clothes. It's just how tragic this is. Which brings us to point number two. We go from the arrangement to the arrest. And when the cup was found in Benjamin's bag, everything changes. Benjamin is now going to be sentenced to a life of slavery in Egypt. And if not slavery, he'll be sentenced to death. I mean, really, it, it could not have been worse at this point. And, and yet, when, when you zoom out, when you start looking at, at what's going on big picture, what you see is these boys have changed. 22 years ago, they didn't care about their father. They certainly didn't care about their father's favorite son. Now they clearly care. When Joseph was the favorite son, they abandoned him when he was sold into slavery. But when Benjamin faces slavery, they load up their donkeys and they head to Egypt to stand with him. And with Joseph, they they didn't care what their father thought. So much so that they took some old goat 
slaughtered it, took the blood from that old goat, and they put it on his, his coat. They tricked their father. Zooming out, these boys have changed. Look at verse 14. And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him, which, by the way, is the third time that they fulfilled that dream that Joseph had 22 years before. And they didn't do anything wrong. And the evidence was planted. And the crime was fabricated. And listen, it would have been really easy for, for them to come back and, 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 and just have accusations of being framed. Right? We're innocent. We were set up. The, the money we gave you was put in our, back in our bags. Benjamin couldn't have stolen the cup. He didn't have the means to steal it. He certainly didn't have the motive to steal it. But they didn't do that. They were humble. And Joseph meets their humility, not with more humility, but with anger. Look at verse 15. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can practice, can indeed practice divination? Listen, none of us think Joseph is practicing divination. So why would he say this? I think he's saying it's just one more element of Joseph's disguise to pose as a true Egyptian that was involved in pagan worship. That's it. The fact that the Egyptian wouldn't eat with him. Remember a few weeks ago that the Egyptians wouldn't eat with Joseph? That, that tells you Joseph wasn't one of them. And remember in verse 2 when, when Joseph was talking to his steward about the cup? He doesn't call it a cup of divination. What's he call it? My cup. The silver cup. But when he refers to that cup, or referring to that cup to his brothers, he calls it a cup of divination. By the way, this, this would have made the impression to his brothers that this dude's got a, silver, a crystal ball or something. I mean, he knows everything. He knows our birth order. He knew about our father. He knew about our brother who wasn't with us. And Joseph knew that if they thought that he already knew everything, it'd keep them from trying to hide anything. Why? Because he's the man. He's the Lord of the land. That's what they think of him. And so point number three is the admission. The admission is really the admission of Judah. Judah steps up. 22 years earlier, remember when, when Joseph was, was crying out, when he was pleading for his brothers not to kill him? It, it was Judah's bright idea to, you know what, guys, let's not kill him. Let's just make some money off him. Let's, let's sell him as a slave. And now we see Judah again. He takes the lead. He's representing his family. And by the way, they're, they're innocent. They are innocent of stealing the cup. What are they not innocent of? What they did to Joseph. So what's he admitting to? Not to stealing the cup, but of what they did to Joseph. Look at verse 16. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Listen, the only one guilty was Benjamin. But he said, God found out our iniquity. So their, their conscience has, has been bugging them for over two decades. They, they couldn't hide what they thought they had gotten away with. And the passing of time, that, 
that hasn't erased the guilt of their sin. And Judas says, God found out the iniquity of his servants. What iniquity? They didn't steal the cup. Judah's not admitting to steal the cup. Judah is admitting, admitting to what they did to Joseph. But they don't abandon Benjamin like they did Joseph. They're going to stick by Benjamin, even if that means going into slavery themselves. Listen, and I know I call them these boys. These are grown men. These are 40, 50, 60-year-old men who are volunteering to go into slavery. Like, that's significant. These guys came from wealth. They came from prosperity. You see what I'm saying? These boys have changed. And and look how Joseph responds. Verse 17, but he said, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, Benjamin's the guilty one. Hey, the rest of you guys, you go back to daddy. Go back to living your life in Canaan. I'll just take Benjamin. He'll be my slave. Point number four is the appeal. Back in the old days, Judah would have said, hey, daddy, we tried. He let us go. I told him we'd be, we'd be his slaves, all of us. The, the prime minister said, no, I've just taken Benjamin. And so Judah has been shown grace. But Judah's also been starved. He's been imprisoned. Now, now he himself is standing helplessly by and trying to stick up for Benjamin. And, and his appeal, and I, I didn't want to rush into this, his appeal that he's going to make may be among the most powerful speeches that have ever been given. H.C. Leopold said this, This is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches that has ever been delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. Donald Gray Barnhouse called it the most moving address in all of the word of God. And we have to, we need to read it like that because I think the tendency is is it seems like it's just review. It's not review. This is critical information that Joseph needs to know, and the way that that Judah presents it to him is vital. Look at verse 18. Then Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. Listen, you you don't come into the presence of of a person of this high authority and start screaming about how your brother was framed, right? Oh, life is so unfair. Remember when Esther approached the king, who, by the way, was her husband? She knew that that her going in there without being summoned could have meant sure death. So he's approaching this man with, like, high respect. He's honoring the king, and he honors the king in order to have a voice with the king. He's, He's actually responding to Joseph's anger with humility. And I know we live in a world that just says that, you know, the, the angrier you are, the, the more likely you are to get what you want. And we're, we're so quick to give people a piece of our mind. My pastor used to say, sometimes we give people a piece of our mind that we can't afford to lose. Proverbs sixteen twenty one says, the wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech, of speech increases persuasion persuasiveness. You want to get something done? 
It's not angry speech that's going to do it. Sweet speech. Kindness goes a long way. You know, the last few years I've been traveling, it's the funniest thing. Sherry calls me a kiss-up. I just say I'm being kind. But in South Africa, they have these um, candy bars. They call them PS bars. And so it's a a postscript. So it's PS, I love you. PS, thank you. PS, best friends forever or whatever. You know, they have all these things. And, 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 And I bring, typically I bring two cases back. My kids love them. And, and so I thought, oh, I'm just going to buy maybe like 15 of them. And I picked out the ones that say, thank you, I appreciate you, or whatever. And I, and I, I get on the flight, and, and I say, and this is like a 17-hour flight, and I'd say, I'll tell people, hey, just, I always say thank you when we're leaving. And I just want to say thank you uh, for all your hard work as I'm coming onto the plane. Just a little bit of kindness. People are just rattled. Like the, 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 the flight attendants are just like, wow, I get in my seat. Next thing I know, they, hey, Mike, they always call me by my first name. Hey, Mike, I've got a whole row in the back. If, if you want it, it's yours. Yeah. Are you kidding? It's a 17-hour flight, and they have the whole thing. And then they'll make an announcement, nobody's allowed to change seats. If you see open seats, you're not allowed to take them. They're like, we got you. It's the craziest thing. I've had people, they'll... they'll Hey, Mike, I noticed you were sleeping. Uh, We handed out sandwiches, but I saved two in the back if you want them. Mike, by the time we go back to your row, we didn't have any any more salad left, and and, and we felt really bad. And I said, oh, I didn't even know salad was available, so it's not a problem at all. And they said, no, we felt really bad. So we saw that you're a SkyMiles member, so we actually added 30,000 miles to your account. (laughs) Proverbs 16, 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. What if we just made a practice of just being kind? Just speaking to people with kindness, being grateful to the people who serve us in life. Judah, he, he rightly recognizes Joseph's position. Joseph is the highest and Judah humbles himself to the lowest. And now Judah, like this Judah, who's pleading for the favorite son, Benjamin, is the same Judah that said, let's sell the first favorite son, Joseph. And now he's not fighting for fairness. He's not making excuses. He's just carefully crafting his appeal. And it's kind. And it's brilliant. Look at verse 19. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, then his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, Prime Minister, we, if not for your questions about our family, you, you wouldn't have ever even known anything about us having a brother. 
We didn't bring up our brother to you. You brought him up. All, all we wanted was to buy some grain. You asked me, have you, have, a father, have, you had a, have you a father or a brother? You said, bring him down to you. You said, unless your youngest brother comes with you, you will not see my face again. My Lord, he's saying, these, these are your questions. If you hadn't questioned us, we wouldn't have even had a second thought about, about bringing him up here. And if we never brought him up here, then your cup would never have come up missing. He continues, verse 24. Thus it came about when we went up to my, your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn into pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. You know what this is for Joseph? New information. First time he's heard it. We've heard it a couple times. But this is new, and, and he's, he's, he's relaying a conversation that they had with their dad that he has not heard yet. So we told our dad that we can't go back without Benjamin, but, and he waited as long as he could, but when the grain was gone, we didn't, we didn't have another choice. And he told us to go back and buy food, and we reminded him about Benjamin, and, and Judah is really crafting his words carefully here. Rather than saying Benjamin's brother is dead, he says, my father says, surely he is torn into pieces. I've not seen him since. That's what his father said. Earlier, Judah says that the other brother's dead, right? From everything that I can tell, this is the first time Joseph hears the lie they told to their dad about him. Imagine that. Joseph hears this about himself and his father. How sad this must have been for Joseph. How agonizing this must have been as he thinks about how his dad felt when, when he thought that his son, who was sitting right in front of them, was killed, how he was torn to pieces. Remember, Judah has no idea who Joseph is. Judah's not trying to manipulate him. He's not trying to appeal to, to, the, to their common father, right? This is personal. You know what I see in this? It doesn't really matter who Joseph is. Judah loves his father, which is a huge contrast from 20 years before when they couldn't care less about their father. These boys have changed. Look at verse 30. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow, which was exactly the words that, that Jacob had used. Again, this is more evidence of a change of heart because he cares about someone he didn't care about before. He despised his father before. I mean, he, he treated all of their mothers as second-class wives. He played favorites, and he didn't hide the fact that they weren't his favorite. He had one favorite wife who had two favorite son and sons, and she's dead. And as far as they were concerned, the first favorite son is dead as well. 
And just picture yourself being Jacob. He's, he has favorites, right? Judah's not his favorite. Imagine being Judah. Imagine being the brothers. They've gone through decades of favoritism. Decades of rejection from their father. And I keep emphasizing this because I, I hope you can see how much Judah has changed. This is a different man. Look at verse 32. For your servant, speaking of himself, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. The only reason that Benjamin could come was because Judah promised his father that he would be responsible for his safe return. Now let's finish the chapter, verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? You know, one of the evidences of a transformed life is a willingness to lay down your life for somebody else. It's a willingness to consider somebody else as more important than yourself. And these boys have changed. They resented Joseph when he was a favorite son, but they didn't resent it when Benjamin was put in that position. They didn't abandon him when the silver cup was found in his bag. They stuck together with him. They humbled themselves by bowing before Joseph and they showed due concern for how this might affect their father. And Judah is willing to be the substitutionary sacrifice for his brother. Why? Because of his love for his father and his brothers. So how do we apply this? Well, a few different ways, I think. And number one is to know your sorrow. To know your sorrow. For 22 years, Joseph's brothers were sorrowful. Nobody would doubt that they felt bad for what they did to them. But their sorrow didn't lead them to repentance. You know what their sorrow did? It led them to hide. Nobody doubts that they felt awful for what they did. But there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. What's the difference? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 8. Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. And now I rejoice that, not that you were made sorrowful. You, you see what he's saying here? He's like, I, I sent you this letter kind of a, a, about yourself, right? You read 1 Corinthians. It's a pretty scathing letter. He said, I sent it, and then you guys felt really bad about it. And he said, and I, initially I felt bad that you felt bad, but I don't feel bad that you felt bad anymore. He says, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Here's an easy way to explain it. Worldly sorrow is hating the consequences of your sin rather than hating your sin. Worldly sorrow leads you to fear of getting found out. Godly sorrow is fear of the wrath of God. Worldly sorrow keeps you hiding. Godly sorrow brings about repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to more sin and death. 
Godly sorrow leads to life and righteousness and know your sorrow. Before they, they can be fully reconciled as a family, there, <clears throat> there has to be conviction of sin that, that leads to godly sorrow. And, and I would just as a reminder say that if you're convicted of sin and that conviction of sin doesn't lead to confession of sin, then Satan's gonna come in and he's gonna condemn you for that sin. You call yourself a Christian and you just did that? How could you read your Bible? Why even go to church? Who are you to tell anybody about Jesus? By the way, that's not conviction. Conviction comes from God. That's condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1, look at it. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, then his spirit will convict you of sin. And if you don't respond to that sin, then Satan's going to condemn you for that sin. And so you need to deal with your sin biblically. You need to deal with your sin early. I, I like the saying the old farmer used to say, as I does them, I fess them. As I sin, I confess them. Keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with people you've sinned against. Point number two in our application, forget the past. Now listen, when I say forget the past, I don't literally mean you forget it, right? We're not designed to forget. You start forgetting things, amnesia or Alzheimer's, one or the other. Okay, that's not good. We're not designed to forget. But we are designed to be able to choose not to remember. God doesn't forget our sins in the sense that he no longer has knowledge of it. God has all knowledge. knowledge. He chooses not to remember. He chooses not to hold it against us. It, it would have made perfect sense on a human level for Judah to respond to his father with anger. Because the whole, his whole life, he has been a second-class son. At some point, he looked past his father's favoritism. At some point, he chose to return good for evil. And I would simply, in the application of it, just say, well, how about you? You who've been rejected. You who've built up this wall to protect yourself so you will never be hurt again. Is there anger and bitterness and hatred towards another? How's that working for you? If you're good with it, then that's the sign of a calloused heart. And I'm not asking you to put yourself in a position to be sinned against over and over and over again. But I, I am saying, listen, at some point, you have to move forward. At some point, you have to forget what lies behind and you have to reach forward to what lies ahead. I can't tell you how many people in their 40s and 50s and 60s whose lives are a mess and they're a mess because of decisions they've made. And they will tell you the reason my life is a mess is because something my mom did to me or my dad did to me or a coach said to me or a teacher gave me a bad grade when I was in eighth grade. And I'm like, at some point, you've got to move forward. Everyone in this narrative could have blamed somebody. Joseph could have blamed his brothers. Judah and the brothers could have blamed their father. Benjamin could have blamed the steward. Philippians 4, verse 11, not that I speak from want, 
but I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All things, all things through Christ. I can confess my sins because of Christ. I can forgive others because of Christ. I can be kind to those who are unkind. I can be loving to those who are unloving. I can pick up my cross. I can die to myself daily. I can be content in whatever circumstance I am because that's what it looks like to live life through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, point three, we have to pursue reconciliation. We can't just wait for it to happen. On the road towards reconciliation, there has to be conviction of sin And that conviction of sin should produce godly sorrow such that that godly sorrow moves you to confess sin and repent of sin. To repent means literally to change. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And there's no reconciliation without repentance. And there's no repentance without the guilt and conviction of sin. They work hand in hand. And these boys carried the guilt of their sin for over 20 years and every time they, something bad happened to them, you know what they thought? It's because of what we did to Joseph. But, but that guilt and conviction, they felt like it was easier to deal with the, the guilt of their sin than to actually deal with the sin. And so here you have Judah pleading for Benjamin, willing to be Joseph's slave as Benjamin's substitute. He's like, my life for his life. It's the same thing that the lion from the tribe of Judah did. My life for their life. He traded his life for our life. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. The one who had never sinned was broken and crushed for us. We said, that was the bread. It crunches between your teeth. It's the broken body of the Lord Jesus. Well, why him and not anybody else? Because he was sinless. How do we know he was sinless? He had pure blood. He had never sinned before. Three days after he died, he rose from death. Death couldn't hold him down because sin would have kept him in the grave. And if you have never trusted in Christ, there's no better time than today. These guys were accused of a crime they never committed. But the problem was that the, the guilt of the crime they were never accused of. You see, time doesn't erase sin. Jesus erases sin. He took your sin and my sin on the cross to die as our substitute to free us from being slaves, I'm sorry, from free us to being slaves to sin to being slaves of Christ. And God is a loving father and his desire is to pour out his blessings on you. He wants to save you. He wants to enable you to live a life that pleases him. And so to come to God in repentance, it's not to to stand before him in fear, trying to, to barter for blessing, right? God, if you just help me this one time, then I promise I will. Now, that's not how you come in repentance. To come to him in repentance, you, you just cast yourself before his throne of grace. And there is no penance to pay. Repentance does not mean penance. Jesus paid it all for us. And all to him we owe. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that just seems to hit week after week after week. How exciting it's going to be when we see the reconciliation of these boys next week. I pray for those in our congregation, maybe those that have never been reconciled to you. God, I thank you that you've given us conviction of sin, that we might repent, that we might believe in Jesus. I thank you for this example that you've given in Joseph and Judah and in Jacob. I pray that it wouldn't just be another cool story, but it would be the very thing that points us to the Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. May he be glorified as we worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's.